Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, a podcast from SVLG that talks to the people who make our world-leading innovation economy what it is. I'm your AI announcer, Vivi. Today's show dives into the semiconductor industry, solving for greater digital equity and what it means to be a leader in Silicon Valley. Driving the important conversations are our SVLG hosts, Nadia Anderson, Chief of Staff for SVLG and SVP of Strategy, as well as her co-host, Peter LaRoe Munoz, SVLG General Counsel and SVP of Tech and Innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Anderson. And I'm Peter LaRoe Munoz, and we're excited to be bringing you Silicon Valley Vibes. On this very electric episode of SVV, we're talking all things semiconductors with the CEO of Bright Lab, Robert Denise. We're also chatting with industrial and organizational psychologist, Dr. Melissa Steech, about different types of leadership here in Silicon Valley. But first, I'm talking digital equity with Comcast Regional Senior Vice President, David Tashian, about their efforts around affordable connectivity. As you know, this has been a big initiative for SVLG. Ensuring digital equity is vital on so many fronts. In fact, during the recent pandemic, our amazing SVLG members raised over $1 million for efforts to reduce the digital divide right here in Silicon Valley. Let's listen in. So David, it is good to meet you. Thank you so much for joining Silicon Valley Vibes. Before we jump in, I did the thing that millennials do. So I went on Google and looked you up. And you have a very unique personal story and background, which I hope that you're willing to share with our listeners today. So I saw that you are a former chef, you are into the arts. And if you looked at your LinkedIn, I see a number of philanthropic boards. I feel like there's a story here. Well, I uh, consider myself uh, a, having a growth mindset. I strive to be a lifetime learner. Uh, an ally, a champion, a partner, uh, a mentor, a mentee. And I try to help others see that there's many paths to happiness, joy, success, and love. Uh, and that might sound a little, a, little, a little different coming from an executive with a Fortune 25 company, but I'm not your, I haven't really taken the typical path uh, to be here either. So it's a little bit of uh, one of the reasons I'm at the company, Comcast, that I'm at is Comcast helps me live into my why. Uh, empowering me to serve on boards, like you said, and whether it's my personal funds, but mostly the company's funds that helps fulfill that. And I'm just such uh, uh, so uh, pleased, privileged, honored, whatever the right word is, uh, to be a part of that and to help the company. I mean, we we believe in uh, our our mission is to connect people to what's important, uh, period, <laughs> and what matters. And uh, doing that along with um, all the digital equity things that the company does. Uh, focus on building out into unserved and underserved areas when it comes to broadband. So it's uh, my journey has not been typical, and I like to help see others that you don't you don't have to have a typical journey. No, I love it. I love the outliers, as they say, people who enter into the executive spaces from those non-traditional roots. That piece about being a lifelong learner absolutely resonates with me as well. I went to Mr. Jefferson University, so that was instilled in us very early about the fact that you are never a senior. You are just continuing your educational journey and path and exposure. Um, you touched on something briefly that I want to pull on a little bit more in our conversation, which is the incredible work that Comcast is doing in the DNI space. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, I would say it's a commitment that the company has always had. We had a chief diversity officer. He did other things in the community as well uh, for 20 plus years. 
Uh, and so it's always been a mission, whether that was helping out uh, underrepresented communities in Philadelphia over the years, uh, serving folks, our Internet Essentials Program, which offers affordable uh, affordable Internet uh, for all, and certainly partnering most recently with the federal government on the ACP program to get uh, even better speeds and, and more affordable for folks. So you have all of those components uh, that the company has and really important to us. If we can't get broadband to everyone, then we're just not going to be as healthy as a human race. And we, we know that and understand that and live into that. And then all the other things that go along with it, we, we are in your lives today. Uh, and and so if we're in your lives, how do we continue to make it better and how do we reach those uh, underprivileged and underrepresented uh, folks that don't have that same access? So it's a great combination. Now, it seems like the perfect combination. You mentioned some words that I want to get to a little bit later that I think it's important for our listeners to learn and understand. But before, let's do a little bit of foundation setting. You mentioned equity. This is always talked about in the digital divide, especially when it comes to telecommunications and technology. So how are you all thinking about this in order to create greater digital equity, not only in California, but across the country? When we think about digital equity, we think about the different opportunities we have to provide that. So first is access. That's the first and most important thing. And when we build out a community, we build it all out. We don't look at this neighborhood or that neighborhood or what are the socioeconomics. So we have a ubiquitous network. As we are going through a, a, a 10G evolution and upgrading, uh, that will also continue to happen in a ubiquitous nature. So that's fairly unique uh, to the other providers here in California and across the, the country. That's probably the first thing is access. The second thing uh, would be affordability. Uh, we have uh, programs as little as zero when working with the Affordability Connectivity Program. Thank you. I believe I used the acronym earlier, so I'll, I'll say it out now. I try to, I try to catch myself with that, uh, eliminate those acronyms. So partnering with the federal government, where you can get up to $30 a month towards your broadband bill. So we're providing that as an environment as well. And then the last one is adoption. And we have great partners across the community, again, in California and across the way. I serve on the uh, I served on the Boys and Girls Club uh, board in Oregon, uh, am uh, now moving to the Bay Area Boys and Girls Club uh, as well. And so with partners like them, we do all sorts of digital literacy and adoption programs, many, many schools that we partner with and, and other community investment organizations, because that adoption is a big piece, that education and adoption is really important, especially in some of the communities that haven't historically had access to broadband. Now, so access, affordability, adoption. The question I have about the program you mentioned, a lot of people probably don't know that the federal government is actually giving $30 towards this. Yeah, I think there, there, there is uh, some awareness. That's a great point, but it is nowhere near 100% participation. And basically, if an individual or a family receives any sort of assistance, generally speaking, they're eligible. There is a uh, I believe it is affordacp.gov uh, is the, is maybe you could help me get the link uh, out, uh, Nadia, but to find out if you are eligible or not. And then you can go through and get that eligibility and apply that uh, for, for broadband services. And we have services as low as $9.99 a month. And then obviously we have uh, much, much faster speeds available. The good thing about our speed availability, though, is that same reliable network is regardless of what speed you have. Um, so folks want it to just work. I want to go to that adoption piece. You mentioned partners on digital literacy, program adoption, et cetera. But 
Would you mind breaking down the word digital literacy? It's something that we hear a lot in many conversations, but I would love for you to put a finer point on what that means for our listeners. I interact with some folks in the community that have not had access to broadband and have not had access to the internet. So let's just in plain speak, educating folks on why it is important access to jobs, access uh, for applying for jobs, is so much of it happening in that digital environment. Education uh, is all happening in a digital space. And we have, uh, you know, we have uh, our fellow humans that are out here in the world and things that many of us take for granted, Nadia, uh, there are individuals, whether they're new to this country, uh, new to an area, uh, English isn't their first language, there's a variety of examples, or simply they haven't had been afforded the opportunity to be in a position to be broadband. So why is it important is probably the first uh, foremost, and then how and then and then how it can help you and then how to make it happen and get on, uh, get get online and, 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 and have broadband. Now, that is a perfect definition and explanation. It's kind of like you have the tools, you need to know how to use them in order for them to be impactful, effective, and also for us to be able to address some of those things you mentioned, too, about the importance of our society and how we all interact as human beings together. Um, that point about reliability. So Comcast 10G network. I want to hear a little bit more about this. What type of impact do you envision this having on the topics of digital equity, on access, on affordability? And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip the acronyms and I'm gonna I'm gonna it's simplified in a way that's been simplified to me by our engineers. Number one, we're taking fiber deeper into our network so that allows us with more reliability. If you have fiber deeper, then you have less amplifiers. And you have then have less fail points. So the network just simply works better. So that's kind of number one from a reliability. The second piece is we're building a network that we can see into. We call it a brilliant network internally. Think of it as a smart network that allows us to pinpoint when, where and when there is a problem or a challenge in the network. Today, when we have a fiber cut, we don't necessarily know, unless it's on I-5, some semi hit a line or something, and we know exactly where it is then we don't know where it is and we have to go and find it. And literally sometimes we're calling up local uh, municipalities, uh, fire dis fire departments, police department to say, hey, did you have an accident somewhere? And then it can be, uh, generally speaking, it's someone else that's doing something else results in our fiber getting cut. Um, not not going to blame any other companies or, or, or departments or anything like that, but it does happen. The vast majority are completely accidental. And so be able to identify that faster, then we can go right, right to where it is. So that also adds to reliability. Uh, speed is key. So at the, at the end of the journey, and uh, your, your point about learning, there is no end, but in the coming years, we'll have a full uh, 10 gig symmetrical network, regardless of if you have fiber or hybrid fiber coax network uh, throughout the state of California. We are about 25% completed. I'm here in Sacramento today. It's one of our farthest along markets about 25% completed with the technology, and now we're working on the software to get there. So then it's, so then it's speed. So that notion of <clears throat> uh, speed as well as reliability, and the last piece is secure. There is no more secure network than our, than, than our network, and we take privacy very, very seriously, and we have uh, many options for customers. There's a, a very, uh, uh, the very fundamentals are in place for every single customer. When you get into our Comcast business products, we have even more advanced security available for businesses to make sure they're completely secure as well. So those are probably the three big things, uh, speed, reliability, the brilliant network, 
and insecurity. No, so Comcast is definitely in the arena, as they say. The brilliant network is something that I love. It's a great term, but it also encompasses the importance of being smart and being able to know where you need to focus your attention. And I also love that point that you mentioned about it looks like a, it feels like a comprehensive wraparound service that's being focused on and happening there and making sure everybody has the same levels of reliability, speed, and looking at equity across the board and quality in a different and new way, for sure. Um, I definitely learned a lot hearing from you about Comcast, what Comcast is working on. My final question for you is more about you as an individual. I feel like more people should know you. You have the perfect blend of working on things that matter to real people and are impactful, but also leading in that executive space. So I wanted to open the floor. Any words you want to leave with our listeners? Any things you want to say in part, knowledge, all the things, the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much for that. I wasn't quite expecting that question, but I think I can... I certainly, it certainly lands nicely with me, and I really appreciate the question. I, I, I said I didn't get here a traditional path. I grew up, my father owned restaurants and bars growing up. I think I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, but I remember standing on a big stock pot at a sink washing dishes. I was probably seven or eight years old. Um, I've lived all over the country. We're, um, I'm settling into the Bay Area here. It'll be my third time living in California, and wherever I land will be the 18th or 19th city that I've lived in. So I've I've seen opportunities and I've jumped at them. I've started over my career three or four times. I've made some shifts in what I do. So I would send a message of, you know, life is not a path, a straight path forward. It's got a lot of zigs and zags and sometimes some some complete steps back. So don't be afraid to try new things, to, to think different, uh, to steal from uh, an Apple saying from many years ago uh, and, and, and see that there's other options out there. And then the last thing is don't be self-limiting in any way. Uh, if you aspire to do something, be something, there's someone out there that's taken that path. Seek them out. Seek them out for advice. Seek them out for counsel. Um, and it really afford, has afforded me, uh, many individuals have afforded me opportunities. There's a phrase sometimes we use in business called uh, taking a taking chance on somebody. And I don't look at it. No one's ever taken a chance on me. Lots of people have given me opportunities. And there's a really big difference. And so when I think about where and who are those individuals that, 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 that I think need an opportunity, that if they were just given a little bit different opportunity, I don't have a degree from some big college. I don't have a master's degree. It's not how I got here. Um, I got to this position with a lot of really hard work, trying to think different, and maybe taking something that I've seen somebody else do and figure out how I can do it even better. There's not a whole lot of novel ideas. I was actually speaking to a group of uh, sales leaders uh, earlier today, and they said, what's the secret? I said, well, the secret is pretty darn simple. It's, you know, set clear expectations, check in along the way, hold yourself and others accountable, and not, not be self-limiting with what's with what the art of the possible is. So that's, that's how I wound up here and uh, being given a lots and lots of opportunity along the way. I feel a tremendous obligation to pay that forward and find others that need that same opportunity. Oh, absolute gems you just shared. I know our listeners are going to have to wind that back and listen to it again because you imparted knowledge for sure. I'm taking away the seeking opportunities and jumping at them. And then also going back to what you said at the onset about aligning yourself and being able to work in an organization that allows you to bring your full self there and aligns with your, your moral compass, your mental compass, and the things that bring you joy. No, David, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Silicon Valley Vibes and joining the conversation. Thank you, Nadia. It was great. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley vibes after this. 
Silicon Valley Leadership Group hosts dozens of events every year with top leaders, area experts, and newsmakers from around the world. From dynamic roundtables to industry forums to our amazing signature events, like our Energy and Sustainability Summit and our upcoming annual forum. And your sponsorship can be a part of it. To find out how, go to svlg.org forward slash events. Hey everyone, it's your favorite AIVV. And now back to your favorite podcast, Silicon Valley Vibes. Welcome back to SVV. So we're going to shift gears a bit and talk to CEO of Bright Lab, Robert Deneve, on the complexity and strategic importance of semiconductors to the United States and Silicon Valley. Robert is a very interesting guy. Comes from the engineering side of the world, owning multiple companies inside of the larger chip ecosystem. I was really interested in hearing his take on where the industry is right now, where he sees things going, but also on the value and importance of all the investments and intention going towards this very important topic. Let's get right to it. In the studio with me today is Robert Deneve, general partner with Next Phase Ventures. There are almost 1,200 steps involved in making semiconductor chips, and Robert is involved in a lot of those steps. So we are very lucky to have him sharing his insight with us today about the semiconductor industry here in Silicon Valley and where it's going into the future. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, semiconductors, as you know, have been critical in the development of high tech around the world, especially the internet. It was developed, they were developed in, in the US and Texas and California in the 50s and 60s. And it's migrated, Silicon Valley was the first uh, area to really uh, pioneer the mass production of these chips. And um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on you know, what side of the issue you're on, they've migrated. And most of the manufacturing, you know, 40, 50% of the most complex chips in the world are manufactured overseas. And that's a problem for this country since chips are key devices and a lot of uh, not just uh, consumer products, industrial products, but weapon systems. And there's a big effort by the U.S. government to bring them back. And that's one of the things I'm here to talk about. And Robert, when you talk about the complexity of semiconductor chips, there are so many steps in that process. What, what makes them so complex and hard to produce? Yeah, they are micro devices. It's kind of deceiving. You look at a little chip and you think, oh, it looks a little insect-like. It's probably easy to make, but it's not. It requires anywhere from seven, 800 steps to a thousand steps. Each step is uh, performed by a multi-million dollar machines. Some is, you know, some costing 20, 25 million, some costing 200 million. And there, it's a very complex process that encompasses photolithography, uh, physiochemical processes, electromechanical automation. It's all the, the tech coming together to produce the chip that enables the tech to basically build on itself. And so these fabs that we build out, they're called fabs that show for wafer fabrication facility. They're uh, the most complex factories doing the most complex uh, manufacturing process on the planet. And what has your work been like with Bright Lab and how does that fit into the larger ecosystem of semiconductors here in the United States? So I started Bright Lab after uh, spending, this is, I think, 46 years in the semiconductor chip and equipment industry. And one of the things that's always struck me as a young engineer coming up and then, you know, as an executive manager 
um, in my later uh, part of my career was how dominant the U.S. has been in semiconductor equipment uh, and chips, right? Another chip story, as we've just mentioned, has shifted a little, but semiconductor equipment, the, 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 the instrumentation and products needed to make these chips is still dominated by the top companies like KLA, Tancor, Applied Materials, LAM. Uh, they're still dominated by these companies that started the industry 50, 50 years ago. So Silicon Valley still has a very strong role to play in, in how to build these chips, even though most of them are being built elsewhere. And what Bright Lab is, is an extension of that. I started Bright Lab in 07 to basically productize and commercialize the product development and manufacturing processes that help the U.S. equipment guys stay so dominant. And we've heard a lot of talk about the CHIPS Act, which is a, a bill that was passed last year in, uh, in Congress and the Senate and signed by the president. It allocates billions of dollars for semiconductor R&D, manufacturing, and workforce development, among other associated projects. How does that funding fit in to America's larger innovation economy, as well as its semiconductor uh, industry? Well, as you know, uh, Peter, chips are in everything, right? If you look at your average car now, they have anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 chips in it. So the, it, the, who control, whoever controls chip making controls you know, their economy. Uh, it's become a, an issue of national security, especially when we have weapon systems uh, that now have chips made by some foreign adversaries. Uh, the, the operators out there in the field, right, our special operators risking their life for this country are feeling a little uncomfortable using equipment, especially communication equipment that has devices in it that might have ulterior motives. So the whole goal of this CHIP Act is, is a noble one, and, and it's a critical uh, national security one where we're trying to bring back uh, most of the chip making technology that we offshored over the last uh, 30, 40 years. And it's critical, right? Who if you control the chip industry, right, or at least the chip usage for your own uh, applications, that puts you in a better position uh, and secures your country. So historically, Silicon Valley was the birthplace of the semiconductor chips that are now being used in all manner of electronic devices. What happened that caused us to lose that leadership in terms of manufacturing these devices? Well, manufacturing prior to, to the high-tech uh, revolution was always kind of considered a, a blue-collar job, kind of, you know, get your hands dirty, you're working in a factory. So when I was coming up uh, as a young engineer in the 70s, manufacturing was actually a, a bad word, right? People wanted to develop, they wanted to do R&D, they wanted to market, they wanted to sell, they wanted to do applications, but manufacturing was always kind of looked down upon. And so I think you had companies that wanted to reduce prices. You know, manufacturing still is, although automation's changing it, it's still, you know, has, is manually intensive. So labor costs, I believe, were the number one driver to start offshoring because these fabs have thousands of people working in there. It takes four or five months to, you know, from design to completion to produce a chip and, you know, several hundred steps. So the cost was the big driver. So by going overseas to, to countries with lower labor costs, it drove the, the pricing of chips down so that the market could, you know, we could proliferate more devices out there. And as the chip count went up, right, the demand for manufacturing uh, services went up as well. And so did the cost. So ultimately, 
the manufacturing process drifted to these foundries. Also, the CapEx, the capital equipment expenses were really high. And so you had labor on top of CapEx, right, on top of the fact that manufacturing wasn't what everybody, anybody wanted to do when they got out of college drove that offshore. Robert, one of the things that we all saw in the news last year were issues and problems around supply chain. And there were pictures of goods and equipment just sitting at our ports on the West Coast that ultimately couldn't be uh, delivered around the country. And there were shortages of goods that were critical needs, but also goods that were everyday needs for consumers, whether they were things like dishwashers or you know, washing machines or, or entertainment devices like video game systems. Does this shortage uh, have anything at all to do with semiconductors and the lack of uh, really manufacturing here in the United States? Yes. I mean, the chip industry is known for its cycles, right? Overall, it's grown tremendously. It's a $500 billion industry right now, semiconductors. Um, it took 50, 60 years to get to a half a billion a year. Uh, just to give you an idea of the growth that's expected, it's going to take five to six years only to hit a trillion. So we'll do what we did. did we'll do in the next five, six years what we took 50, 60 years to do. That's the exponential growth of chips and devices. As the fourth industrial revolution kicks in and smart products and smart factories drive the need for chips and, and with all the AI applications, chip count is only going to go up. So that's one of the big, uh, the big issues. So what you have is a supply chain that was in the middle of a big ramp and then COVID hit. And COVID, you know, was a global pandemic. It hit some countries, all countries hard, but some countries were better able to deal with it. So I think you had several things going on, you know, inc incredible demand, a shortage of labor. And, you know, there's geopolitical instability around the world. You add all that up and it became a perfect storm for supply chain madness. Robert, we know that semiconductor manufacturing is an important issue on the global scale. It's also an important issue here in the United States as well. And we know that California is competing against other states with regard to manufacturing of semiconductor components, but also around research and uh, manufacturing as well. So what are your thoughts for how California stacks up relative to other states? Well, the, the obvious answer comes up, right, that, you know, we have a disadvantage because of our labor costs are higher because it's a more it's a state where it's expensive to live. But it's also a fallacy to say that California is a high cost area because you can just drive outside San Francisco, Silicon Valley, San Diego, Sacramento, 45 minutes an hour, then you're in a low cost region. So that's something that the state needs to uh, promote and market better. So that, that's the, the labor uh, aspect of it. But then there's the, another perception is that Silicon Valley sta you know, started the chip revolution. I mean, Silicon Valley's named Silicon Valley after those chips. And that you know, we already have a lot of factories here and, and all that. What they don't realize is most of those factories are gone. There's very few. There's R&D there's here, but not manufacturing. So I think and then then you have our state government maybe not lobbying enough, right, thinking that, you know, the high tech valley is, is here and it's self-sustaining. So I think that we as a, that's why I love working with you guys. Right. Uh, as a group, I think we need we owe our, our, our the people that live in this state. Uh, we owe them the, the project. Right. We have to launch a project to educate 
the federal government and the state government that California is still is the best place because the closer you bring manufacturing to design and the design centers are still here, the, that proximity issue needs to be addressed. I think the better, the closer they are, the better products you get out. So I think California still is competitive. Uh, we just need to be smart and, and be uh, tenacious about it. Let's drill down into that just a little bit more. What role do higher education institutions play in the development of semiconductor chips and components? That's a great question, Peter. One of the reasons why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley and it's hard to replicate, it, it was a convergence of a lot of things, right? Just great weather, great, a lot of open land because we were primary agricultural, uh, you know, an influx of immigrants. So you have talent and, 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 and you know, uh, high, highly motivated workforces. But you also have a great educational system. California's edu higher educational system is the best in the world. And in Silicon Valley, you have a convergence of three, four major universities, right? You got UC Berkeley, you got Stanford, you got Santa Clara University, San Jose State, all coming together and producing the engineers and the executive managers that, that we need to keep this industry moving forward. Robert, one thread that I'm picking up throughout our entire conversation is just how much is at stake with regard to the United States getting it right when it comes to semiconductor chips and components, whether that has to do with national security, our economy, goods and services for consumers and entrepreneurs, there's just a lot that's really at stake that's riding on these chips and the semiconductor components. Is there anything that kind of keeps you up at night as you think about the semiconductor industry? Yeah, I think the uh, biggest challenge is workforce development because the skill sets that you need to design, build, and operate a wafer fab are very complex, as we've been discussing during this interview. And uh, there's just not enough engineers that have uh, mechatronics, robotic, chemistry, physics backgrounds because it's a multi uh, it's very multidiscipline in terms of technology. If you look at how a chip is built, it is a it is it covers every technical spectrum uh, there is, right? From chemistry to physics and, and automation, everything in between. So I think our greatest challenge is as these fabs get built. And there's two being built in Arizona right now, two being built in, in Ohio, including one, you know one uh, that's going to be a twenty five billion dollar fab. Think about that a factory. That's, that costs $25 billion. It's going to be the largest fab in the world, the most complex fab, and it will be hungry for competent technicians, managers, and engineers to help run it. So if I had to point to something that we're still, I think, behind the curve on is workforce development to support this industry. It's reshoring and it's, and it's ultimate growth trajectory. Robert, what do you see as the future of semiconductors specifically here in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think the, the, the design and development or the system architecture will, will be centered here for quite some time to come. Uh, it's traditionally been here, kind of all started here and, and just blew up and, 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 and proliferated around the world. You know, we still have some of the world's brightest and hardest working people coming to this area. It's still a fantastic area to live. So I don't think that's going to change. I do think some factories, you know, have a chance of coming back. Um, because there are some low cost regions, you know, around around us. So I think you're going to see the silicon be put back into Silicon Valley uh, to some degree. 
And uh, I think through the work of you and others and myself and, and the Valley, hopefully we can increase that the share of that pie as much as possible. You mentioned earlier that Silicon Valley has a history of about 50 years of working on and developing semiconductor chips. And also in that time frame, about 45 years ago, David Packard of Hewlett Packard founded the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. So there's a little bit of overlap there. Where do you see the next 50 years taking us with regard to the development of semiconductor chips and components? Yeah, I've been a big HP fan for years. And when he started uh, the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, that was an example, a perfect example of this high level of collaboration that exists throughout the supply chain and the investment community in Silicon Valley. And that's what makes Silicon Valley great is those levels of cooperation. Uh, in fact, what I see going forward is more of that. It's one of our strengths. And the fact that you and I are here talking today is an indication of that. And what I'd like to see, and I think we can uh, head towards, is levels of collaboration that are so high that even um, my competitors will join us in helping to build a stronger high-tech uh, community and bring semiconductor chips back here. That level of collaboration we, we coined in our study as co-opetition, right? Co so it's collaborative competition. So that level of uh, working together, I believe, is only going to continue. And I think uh, people like you and your team can help us lead the way. Robert, it has been terrific chatting with you today about semiconductors and their importance, not only to Silicon Valley, but to our national economy as a whole. Thank you so much for joining us today on Silicon Valley Vibes. Well, thank you for having me, Peter. You guys are doing great work. Please keep it up. Silicon Valley Vibes will be back after this quick message. I'm Ahmad Thomas, CEO at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. As part of our acceleration agenda, I'm here to announce SVLG's new working group on responsible AI. It's the first initiative we're rolling out under our new Technology and Innovation Center of Expertise. We recognize the tremendous potential of and profound interest around this new technology, and we're committed to ensuring that AI is developed and implemented in a responsible way. The working group is co chaired by SVLG member companies Google and Johnson & Johnson. As the group takes shape, we look forward to working with industry experts, academics, and other stakeholders to bring diverse voices, perspectives, and disciplines to the table. If you'd like to get involved, please visit svlg.org to learn more. And now it's time for something a little different. Organizational psychologist Dr. Melissa Steech in conversation with our own podcast executive producer Chuck Dickinson. Welcome back to SVV. In our final segment, our own executive producer, Chuck Dickinson, catches up with industrial and organizational psychologist, Dr. Melissa Steech. It's one of those moments where you get to see the people, but you also get to learn a little bit about how they operate, what makes them tick, and also what motivates them. Let's check it out. Dr. Steech, thank you so much for joining us today on Silicon Valley Vibes. Thank you for having me on. So over the past year, you and I have had several conversations about leadership. It's something I know both of us are passionate about. We both have an academic background in. And I know for me, at least, it's something I'm always aware of when I'm thinking about the culture of an organization or business. You know, So thinking about leadership within the context of Silicon Valley, I was hoping we could spend some time today talking about the leadership styles and a few of the more well-known leaders by having you give some insight into their styles, along with some helpful takeaways for our listeners. But before we get into all that, let's kick off the conversation with some of your thoughts on leadership in general. Well, I think leadership in general is a word that gets thrown around a lot. 
And I personally feel that it's definitely a verb and not a noun. Leadership is not so much the title. It's not about whether or not you're a formal leader, um, which ironically, many studies have shown that informal leaders actually have more impact on employees in terms of modeling behavior and whether or not that behavior becomes codified within the culture of an organization. But beyond that, I think that leaders lead by example and that they make a way for new leaders. When you say leaders lead by examples and make a way for new leaders, what do you mean by that? I mean that they model behaviors that elevate those around them, whether it's a behavior of the pursuit of excellence, not perfection, whether it's a behavior of grace under pressure, whether it's the well-executed pivot or the quick recovery from failure, whatever it may be, it, it doesn't always have to be compassionate. It doesn't always have to be pretty. Um, what I do think it needs to be um, very often is creative, compassionate, and therefore human so that it can be relatable and repeatable by the people who are being impacted by choices that leaders make on behalf of an organization for the benefit of, of everyone who works there. So when you say compassionate, would you also agree that certain leaders can be successful, but maybe lacking that particular characteristic? Because again, to be a successful leader doesn't necessarily mean that you're good to those that follow you, right? You are interacting with human beings. So even curmudgeons can be compassionate just by simply making eye contact and listening. It's really that simple. So I think that intelligent leaders tend to exhibit some form of compassion, even if it's not the I'm smiling all the time or I'm the nicest person to be around. But there is a level of humanity now, there are, there are examples of successful leaders who maybe didn't exhibit that. Their compassion perhaps came out in their designs and in their product designs that expressed a love for humanity in terms of its accessibility or its usefulness or how ergonomic it was or how good it felt in the hand. You know, there's some sort of recognition and ode to humans. Thinking about some notable leaders from Silicon Valley, I wanted to just toss out a few names and get some feedback from you on you know, what you think of these leaders, what type of leadership uh, they uh, exude. You know, someone has to guide the ship through the storm. So first, Sheryl Sandberg. You know, we know her from Meta. What is your take on her and her leadership style? Well, I would say that she definitely is seen as a transformative leader. Um, I think what's interesting about her is that she came from a management consulting background. I mean, obviously very early on in her career, out, right out of college. But I think that really set her up to understand how business works. But if you think about when she came to the Valley, she definitely came during the height of what I think many would label as a bro culture. So it's not surprising to me that perhaps, and I'm conjecturing here, but perhaps her experience as a business management consulting, a consultant at such a large, respectable firm gave her a leg up in a culture that was not the most welcoming, perhaps, to women at the time, because she understood the mechanics of business. 
And then being able to leverage that as a woman and then making way in time to um, really inspire other women to step into their knowledge with lean, with the book Lean In and then Lean In um, Org to really um, transform the workplace from the inside out. You know, she got in there, she rose in ranks, and then she looked for active ways to build a ladder for other women and build a playbook. And I think that that scene is transformative and it's not just for women, but for everyone around. She's known for creating a culture of collaboration and communication and that we know fuels more creativity and more innovation. Let's try one more. What about the former CEO of YouTube, Susan Wojcicki? What do you think of her? What is her leadership style? Do you have any thoughts on her? Yeah, you know what's incredible about her, which I never put together, but her sister, Anne, the founder of 23andMe. I mean, the first thing I thought was, wow, her parents must be really proud. <laughs> They've got two uh, amazing, like, talk about, like, two amazing kids, um, even though she's a grown woman. You know, her um, her leadership style is uh, similar, you know, when we think about Sheryl Sandberg. And what I think is very interesting about Susan Waljitsky is that she really came up through this industry. So there's a similar, there's a similar thing there. And I don't know if maybe somewhere subconsciously I'm drawing false parallels between her and Sheryl Sandberg, or if it's my bias as a woman. So I'm just putting that out there to be very transparent about that. But there seems to be with both of them, a very unique, perhaps innate understanding of humanity and human nature as it meets technology, innovation, and business. Do you think that those characteristics are necessary to be a successful leader in Silicon Valley? I think perhaps more now than than in the beginning. I think that a lot has changed in the last, I'd even call it five years. I think the, the, the newer generations are not as enamored with tech because they are native to it. And so it is a tool and it is a thing that they take full ownership with, you know, kid, you know, someone who's 14 can create something that, you know, in our generation, we weren't doing, we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the access, we didn't even have the knowledge. And so I think because of that, there is a move toward, I want to see a human thumbprint in this. I want it to be good for people, planet, right? It can't just be about profitability and the product. So I would say yes today, but I think looking back at, you know, these leaders, they're all in their fifties. They all came up at the same time around about in Silicon Valley. And I think that um, their take, their kind of human touch is a bit of, it's, it's what sets them apart or what set them apart at the time. Dr. Steech, do you see any common themes between Cheryl and Susan that stand out to you? Yeah, what I came away with, and you know, I love alliteration. Actually, I don't know anybody who doesn't love alliteration, but I came away with timing, tone, and tenure. And the what I've noticed is that they all got to Silicon Valley at a very ripe time. You know, it wasn't too early on, and it wasn't it wasn't later. It was like right in the juicy part, right? When things were really happening and you could get in there and there was a lot to do and there was enough proof. There were enough proof points that you could get things done. Um, 
there's the tone from from one direction or another, people first, or at least people is a very integral part of the process and of the success of the product. And then finally, tenure, for the most part, have been with their organizations or were with their organizations for at least 10 years to begin with, you know, Um, and that says something too. And I think that that's something that gets lost today, especially in, in the business culture today. There's not very often, there's not a lot of incentive to stay and grow within a company, but there's a lot to be said for growing where you're planted and really learning some lessons and understanding how to work long-term relationships and see a vision through to fruition before moving on to the next adventure. Well, Dr. Steach, thank you so much for these incredible insights. It's always great to talk with you. I'm sure our listeners will uh, appreciate all of the deductions that you've made and insight that you've been able to give into the conversation today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Now it's time for the Silicon Valley Vibes wrap out for Peter and Nadia to give their take and a little takeaway. And that was the conversation. We covered a lot of ground today from equity to chips and finished with leadership. What were some of your favorite points that you heard in this episode? You know, Peter, as a social scientist, the thing that I love the most about all these conversations was that human component. What motivates people, how they absorb information, how they see things going and how these all play a role in how they show up in their personal and professional lives. And Nadia, humans exercise leadership. And that's the the key takeaway for me in this episode, whether it's leadership in increasing equity by reducing the digital divide, increasing leadership over the production and innovation around semiconductors, and finally, creating human-centric leadership in organizations that are innovative and pushing boundaries. That's always gonna be something that's needed in no matter what industry we're talking about. And that wraps this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. Please like, share, and subscribe. And if you're so moved, give us a review. And remember, with millions of stories in Silicon Valley, you can't always get all the details, but you can get the vibes right here on Silicon Valley Vibes. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes and this season. We'll be back next season with even more great stories from the amazing humans who helped shape the innovation, inclusion, sustainability, and vibe in Silicon Valley. The humans and AI who make our show are our executive producer, Chuck Dickinson. Our audio mastering is by R.R. Robbins. Our podcast is produced by the humans at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. AI music provided by SoundRaw. Recording production support provided by the platform Riverside FM. Your AI announcer, me, Vivi, is provided by Eleven Labs. And one last robot joke for the road, a robot is on trial and the judge says, so Miss Robot, your neighbor accused you of stealing their electricity to power yourself. How do you plead? The robot says, guilty as charged. See you next season, everybody.